I pray that your week has gone well and that you have been you have been comforted by the Lord this week. I pray that you have sensed His presence uh, with you uh, this this week as you've gone through your week and as you've gone through even your day coming here this morning. I, I I'm also praying as we have continued this sermon series that that it has blessed you. I know that the Lord has blessed me as I've considered the truths in this amazing passage about the, the Sermon on the Mount, more specifically the, the Beatitudes. Today we are considering, we will be considering Jesus' words in Matthew 5.5 5, where He proclaims, well today consider, we're considering Jesus' words in Matthew 5.5 5, where He proclaims, blessed are the lowly for they shall inherit the earth. As I've said throughout the study of the Beatitudes, Jesus' teaching really ultimately does not in any way match the way of the world. In in the world, the world that we see, we continue to see uh, incredible amounts of unrest. Personally, you know, I do my best not to get caught up in the news, yet yet as we hear the the deadlines, they're devastating, are they not? Uh, We continually hear about wars and, and corruption and, and death as we, as we hit, watch the headlines. I'm, I'm thankful personally not to be caught up in the news cycle, but I'm even more thankful for this. I'm thankful to know that the Lord has won the battle. The Lord has won the battle. As you, as you read this, the news, as you see all the things that are going on, we can know as Christians that He has conquered all of those things. We serve a Lord who is nothing like the petty tyrants that we have in the world today. Speaking of petty tyrants, I've been amazed to watch the the news reports of what is happening in Russia right now, a little over a week ago. This is is the crazy world that we live in. A little over a week ago, we're we're talking about one of the world's superpowers, uh, Russia. A little over a week ago, last Friday and Saturday, there was a, a coup attempt on Vladimir Putin the Russian political leader, the Russian leader uh, there in Russia, a group of 25,000 militant soldiers called the Wagner Group made it nearly all the way to Moscow. Uh, evidently, they were demanding the ouster of the Russian military leadership, uh, pro- probably due to what's going on in, in Ukraine, or it, what, due to what's going on in Ukraine. Putin vowed to flatten their army. He compared this uprising to the Russian Revolution of 1917. Evidently, in response, the president of Belarus was able to broker a deal that avoided bloodshed. But just think about that. Think about what, what happened there. Right now, right now, the mercenary army, from what we can tell, and what's crazy is, is this, this, this news is a week old, right? Think about how quickly news travels and news goes. I mean, you're probably thinking, well, that happened a week ago. Why are you bringing that up here now? I mean, that's how fast it goes, you know? But the, the mercenary army has been relocated to Belarus, and, they, and evidently they don't face prosecution from the Russian government, although I haven't seen it in the last few days. Maybe, they, maybe Putin's wiped them all out at this point. I don't know. But, but it looks like that the, the disaster has been... It has been averted. You know, it's funny, because, or not funny, it's, it's tragic that, that Putin had previously vowed to brutally wipe them out along with their leader. I mean, think about this. Of course, all of this is a major concern for us as, as the United States and the rest of the world because of the, the nuclear arsenal that Russia has. I mean, these guys have nukes. I mean, that's, that's what's crazy. So, so as Christians, I guess the question is, and why I bring this up, it fits with today's sermon, but I, I, I want to ask, how are we to respond to these types of things? Clearly, we need to pray about these developments. It's, it has the, the potential to morph into something much more difficult. The potential for great suffering is, is there for sure. And ultimately, we've already seen great suffering among the people in these regions, including in, in the, especially in, in Ukraine. And we certainly need to pray for stability in that region so that the suffering can be alleviated. And, and we certainly don't want to see it escalate any, any further. The church, uh, the church is throughout the world, and especially in those areas, have been affected by what's going on. And we need to pray for, for Christians there especially. There, there is a, also a potential for, for continued suffering and persecution in that area and throughout the world. And we, as Christians, we need to pray for those things. 
and that we wouldn't forget the potential for brutal atrocities at the hands of brutal men. Well, today we're returning to our study in Matthew, and we've called it the King and His Glory. And over the past few weeks, we've been slowly making our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through And we find ourselves over the past few weeks slowly working through the Beatitudes. And Now, as we watch, this is the connection, as we watch the kings of the earth fight out to see which one will come out on top, I want you to be confident that we serve the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's what Revelation 1.5 says of Christ, Jesus Christ. John says that He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We can have confidence in Him and in Him alone because He loves us and He has released us from our sins by His blood. He has also made us a kingdom. uh, A kingdom that is is to Him to be the glory and, and the might forever and ever. Well, this morning, I want us to consider again as we look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, especially verse 5, chapter 5, 5, verse 5, I want us to consider how are we to respond? How are we to respond in this world that, uh, that seems to be falling apart? So let's pray and then we'll get started together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, Lord, I pray that as we consider these things in Matthew 5, Lord, as I, I pray as we consider what it means to be lowly, and ultimately that the lowly will inherit the earth, I pray that we, you would just show us, give us insight this morning in understanding, even insight in understanding how to respond in a world that seems to be falling apart, how to respond in a world where kings are fighting to see who would come out on top. And it seems that Christians are, are being marginalized on a daily basis. But how do we live in that type of world? Father, I pray, and I know from Scripture, that these things don't catch you unaware. That you have a plan from the found, before the foundation of the world. My Father, that we might walk in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's read together starting in chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, I've called it, we've called it in this study, the King's Manifesto for His Kingdom. King Jesus reveals, we've seen the first two of these steps, now we're going to see first three, or the, the third one that is, He reveals nine steps to your purpose in this life and ultimate blessing in this life and and beyond. We've seen the first step is to possess true poverty. That's Matthew 5.3. The second step is to persevere in learning what offends God and mourning over it. And step three we're going to see today, pursue lowliness in Matthew 5.5. Now, as we have seen... Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount, his sermon, the, the sermon that we have in Matthew 5 through 7, with a series of beatitudes or blessings. We have again completed the first two Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, in prior sermons, we have answered the question, What does it mean to be blessed? 
We have been using the following definition. I have defined blessing as the state of happiness in our inward selves. It comes from the acknowledgement of the reality of how fortunate we are to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. This relationship that we have with God, it produces an inner bliss and contentment that comes from an ever-increasing recognition of all that God has done for us, of all that God has done for us, and that no circumstance or set of circumstances, nothing can change our happiness or contentment in Christ. Now, as I've said, any definition, as I've said before, any definition of blessing will be far short in some way to the incredible reality of the spiritual blessing that Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 5. And my prayer is that you, in some way, and in an increasing amount, that you would be able to realize the blessing of God that Jesus describes here in in this passage. Now, ultimately, any attempt at giving a definition and trying to understand will ultimately fall short because of this. Because God Himself is the source of this blessing. Therefore, we can only be blessed by partaking in His divine nature. And and so His divine nature is unsearchable, right? So as as finite creatures, we're not going to fully understand the infinite. We're just going to get a taste. But we can, in this life, we get a a fleeting glimpse of what it means to be blessed by God. But in, in, in heaven, in eternity, that is, in His presence is fullness of joy. And in His right hand are pleasures forever. And we will get to partake in that forever. What an amazing truth. I hope that that encourages your hearts. We'll have an eternity to experience His full presence and enjoy the pleasures of His right hand. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. Well, we also answered the the question, who are the blessed? So who are the blessed? The blessed are those who have believed in the promises of Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit living within them and with an ever-increasing understanding of what he, is, what he is accomplishing through them. Now, we need to keep these, and I bring them up, and I brought them up the last uh, two to three weeks as we've gone through the study, because we need to keep these definitions in mind uh, in front of us as we continue to step, stepwise through the, be- the Beatitudes. Now, in my proposition statement, I say that, the King, that King Jesus... He reveals nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. Well, the first step then is to possess true poverty. Now, we started looking at this about uh, or three weeks ago. Now, now look at your Bibles in 5.3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, in making this statement, poor in spirit, Jesus is saying that God blesses a person who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy or destitution. They recognize their lostness and sin, their hopelessness in life, and their helplessness to save themselves. They, they come to see themselves as utterly unworthy of God and are completely dependent upon Him to save them. They have cried out, like Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. So we come to see, as Christians, we come to see uh, ourselves in light of His holiness. We come to see ourselves in the light of His holiness. Ultimately, this, this describes a person who has come to the end of themselves. They acknowledge and declare in their hearts that they, uh, that they are nothing before God. That they have come to be a beggar before God. Literally uh, holding their hand without looking, trying to, get, trying, to under, trying to have God give them what they need because they know that they're a beggar before Him. And ultimately, this is the beginning point of salvation. And that's the reason why in Matthew 5, 3, He says, For theirs, those who have come to that point, is the kingdom of heaven. So becoming poor in spirit then is the entry point into the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Let's look at the second of nine steps uh, to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life. Step two then is to persevere in learning what offends God. I mean, we serve a holy God, and so therefore we need to learn and understand what actually offends Him. 
Look back at your text in Matthew 5.4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, over the past two weeks, we attempted to answer, three weeks, we've attempted to answer what, it, what Jesus means by mourning. So what does he mean? Well, as we looked at the context, we found that the second step, the second step that we're looking at is the inevitable result of step one. When I'm forced to face myself and I recognize my utter hopeless state, then I, and then I recognize the true extent of God's character, said another way, His holiness, and I contemplate who I, who I should be considering who I am in light of His holiness, and when I consider the life that I'm meant to be, or live, the life that I'm meant to live, that is, in light of His holiness, of necessity then, I am confronted with the, when I'm truly confronted with this reality, this, would call, this causes me to mourn my sorry states. I, I begin to mourn. I, 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 see, I see that uh, who I am in light of a holy God, and I mourn that. But it doesn't end at that. When I examine my life, and I begin to see all the ways that I, I sin and fall short of His glory, then, then I, that's when I begin to mourn. And so, th- let, me, let me give you the definition of mourning that we used. Godly mourning, the mourning that, we're, that Jesus is talking about here, is a deep and abiding sorrow that is, that is produced by the knowledge of our sins and how far short we fall of God's glory. This type of mourning can only be experienced by those who have recognized They've truly recognized their spiritual poverty, step one, and, and the desperate need for God's mercy and grace. We see this morning, if we look at the pages of Scripture, we see this morning in the lives of the saints, especially saints like Isaiah, and we saw that, or I, I quoted that in Isaiah 6-5, and David in Psalm 32, 3 and 4, and Psalm 51, 3 and 4. We see David mourning over his sin. Therefore, True blessing from God comes as a result of this mourning over our sins. God Himself then becomes or is the, the source of the, this blessing. The, the question is then, how does God bless our mourning? We'll look back at verse five, five, chapter 5, verse 4. He says, "For they Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now the question is, what does comforted mean? Well, last week we saw that the Greek word translated comforted had the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage or help. This could be a, a physical help, like a nurse who comes to our aid. But in Jesus' meaning, but Jesus' meaning has the idea of, of supernatural help from on high. And, and from John 14, we saw the connection to the Holy Spirit, who the Father is sent to be our comforter. Same, type, same root word, our comforter, our helper. In this, we see that the Christian's true source of comfort is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comforts us with a, a comfort that comes from God, that comes from on high. Therefore, only believers who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them can receive this type of comfort. In this, in this phrase, Jesus uses an emphatic pronoun. You could, you could translate it, they. They, they, they will be comforted. They, and only they, will be comforted. Now this usage shows us that only believers who are mourning in a godly way will be granted this supernatural comfort from the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a, a truly a Trinitarian comfort. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, He has promised you this supernatural comfort from on high. But the question is, how do we receive this comfort? Well, we come to a knowledge of our sins, and, and, and we come to this knowledge of our sins, but that's just the beginning. It, it, this isn't a one-time thing. It's a, it's a continual process in the life of, of the true believer in Christ. We, constantly are, uh, we will be constantly brought back to the knowledge of our sinful flesh. We will cry out with Paul over and over, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Romans 7.24. As a Christian, as one who, who mourns over their sin, uh, well, there will be continue, as a Christian, there will be continual mourning over our sins. Even as you grow in, in sanctification, it doesn't get any better. You will continue to mourn over your sin. You will always see that you sin and fall short of the glory of God, and that will be ever-increasing. 
Yet when we confess our sins, I, I prayed this earlier, when we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's one reason why we, every month we come together and we, we have communion because it gives us the opportunity together as a church to, to confess our sins to our Lord and He, he cleanses us and He lifts our, our burden from us. And I, I love His promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Uh, Jesus says, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we come to Him, when we confess our sins, when we lay that burden at His feet, we are, we are offloaded with that load, and we, we know that we have been forgiven. And in the words of John MacArthur, he says, As often as we confess our sin, He is faithful to forgive. And for as long as we mourn over sin, He is faithful to comfort, end quote. What an incredible, what an incredible promise for the Christian. This leads us to the third step toward your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life. Step three, step three, pursue lowliness. This will be for the rest of uh, this morning. Pursue lowliness. Look back at your text in Matthew 5, 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Can you imagine, you know, thinking back, and the reason I brought this up, the, the, the situation with, in Russia, can you imagine quoting this statement in its full meaning to our world leaders today? Blessed are the lowly, for they, they shall inherit the earth. Not the kings of the earth who are fighting over who's going to come out on top. You see, they would be shocked to know that God blesses those who are lowly and meek. They would, they would laugh and they would sneer at the idea that the meek and the lowly would inherit the earth. Yet, that's exactly what Jesus promises. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, world conquest, possession of the whole universe, not just this, not just this bag of rocks that we, have, that we call the earth, but the whole universe is, is given to the meek of all people. The, the world ter- thinks in terms of strength and power and of ability and self-assurance and aggressiveness. That is the world's idea of conquest and possession. The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and, and manifest your powers and ability, the more you, likely you are to succeed and get on, in quotes. Even in his time, Jesus' words would not have sat well with the political establishment of the day. The Roman rulers that, that occupied uh, Israel at that time were absolutely brutal. They were brutal. And they looked good compared to the ones that came before. The, the, but yet, the Jewish response to them, to their occupiers, was, was one of pride and, and self-sufficiency. They believed that they were, they were much better than the wicked Romans, the Gentile scum that was occupying them. You see, they looked forward to, to the day when their Messiah would come and absolutely crush their, their oppressors. Then, then He would give them their rightful place in the world above all earthly kingdoms. Said another way, they believed that His force would override the force of the Romans. So ultimately, they were no different than the Romans. Ultimately, they thought just like the world did. Except they believed they were spiritually above all people, which made them even worse in some ways. After all, in their minds, they were God's chosen people. Yet, yet they had only, what's crazy about that is that they had only had rare moments of freedom throughout their history. They, they had been a, a captive people for most of their existence. Their history was one of ups and downs, of conquest and oppression. You see, they had, joined, they had enjoyed pockets of, of independence, but mostly had endured subjugation to foreign powers. They had enjoyed freedom after the conquest under Joshua. They had several hundred years of freedom under David and Solomon and and the later kings. But they had never experienced complete peace and rest from their enemies. Eventually, the northern and southern kingdoms endured a time of of captivity. And after returning from this, this captivity, they were still under the yoke of slavery for centuries. They were... They had been oppressed and enslaved by Egypt after the time of, of, of Joseph. The, the Assyrians had, had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The Medes and the Persians had taken Judah into captivity. Then they were under the yoke of the Greeks. And after that, they experienced a period of freedom, just a small period of freedom after the Maccabean revolution that had freed them from Greece. 
Then Rome came in around 63 B.C. and and subjugated them yet again. And after that time, the Romans set up the Herodian, uh, the the Herods, the Herodian uh, dynasty as puppet kings to rule in that region. And they had also placed Roman governors such as Pilate in the region to rule alongside the Herods. Yet, so even though, even though they had rarely enjoyed a freedom, they, they, the freedom they desired, they were still an incredibly proud people. They had, they had a difficult time even acknowledging that they were under the, the yoke of Rome. In John 8, Jesus was teaching on the Mount, Mount of Olives, and, and John says that Jesus was exhorting some Jews who had believed in him. And, he, and Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will, will make you free. And, and, and their response to them was truly odd and, and astounding, considering their spotty history. Now, Jesus, they, they answered him and said, We are Abraham's seed, and, and never yet has any been, and never yet have been enslaved to anyone. Can you believe that? That they would say that? How is it? He, they even said, How is it that you say that we will become free? I love Jesus' answer back to them. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Ultimately, Jesus wasn't even talking about political enslavement. He was talking about the spiritual bonds of slavery from our sins. Yet, they clearly and completely missed his intended meaning. And they started babbling on about political slavery. And in doing so, astoundingly, they denied the obvious. Their pride wouldn't even let them see the truth of their difficult history. Their spiritual pride wouldn't let them recognize that at that very moment, Roman, the Romans ruled over them. And they had been subject to an illegitimate Idumean family in the Herods. In their pride, prideful minds, they were absolutely independent and free. They were only waiting on the Messiah to come and make it right. And, and, but because of their sin, because of their sin and, and, and their slavery to sin, God had placed them under the yoke of slavery to Rome. And they couldn't even see it. Yet, there was a sense, this is what's crazy, there was a sense that they understood and they resented the fact that they were under the yoke of Rome. But ultimately, they didn't see the Roman, Roman rule as anything legitimate. And they longed for the day that, that God would actually send the Messiah. But they saw Him, they saw him in, as a military force. Some groups like the Pharisees looked forward to Him coming with an unmistakable force of supernatural power. He would free them from Rome and set up national Israel that would only answer to the Messiah. They would have a theocracy. And as such, they... they, they they would take their rightful place as rulers of the world. And they, along with the, the, the Sadducees, had learned how to coexist alongside the Romans. They, they longed for the Messiah to set them free, but they still, even in that situation, they learned how to profit from their occupiers. On the other hand, the, the, the Essenes had isolated themselves. They tried to live as if the Romans and even the rest of the Jews didn't exist. But it was the zealots who were the, the wild cards. They were vocal. They were actively trying to usher in the rule of the Messiah. They were actively looking for a military leader who would conquer Rome and the world. They were willing to meet the force of Rome with their own force. They were, they were absolutely willing to die for the cause of Israel. They were unwilling to sit back and patiently wait on the arrival of their deliverer. And ultimately, their influence within Israel grew to the point that Rome had to crush the, the resistance. And you've heard of uh, 70 AD. During, in 70 AD, Rome, under the leadership of the future emperor Titus, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. According to Josephus, he brutally wiped out over a million in, in Jerusalem. Now, he attributes this high number to the Passover celebration. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, the death count was 600,000. Now, uh, understand that these have been disputed, but most historians agree that many, many Jews died during that time, and ultimately the most zealous among them fled to a place called Masada. They were able to hold or to make a stronghold in that fortress that had been built by Herod, King Herod, the the Herod during Jesus' time. They were able to make that fortress into a fortress for three years or into a stronghold. 
And at that time, Rome was able to build a siege ramp to storm the stronghold and to kill the last of the rebel resistance. I mean, they wiped them out. Sadly, though, I mean, they, they, you're talking about a prideful people. Their resistance didn't end there. And in 132 through 135, the Romans under Hadrian destroyed cities and, and wiped out Jewish res, resistance. They were truly, uh, Isaiah, and, Isaiah 65 2 says that they are a rebellious, uh, an obstinate and rebellious people. I mean, they are truly obstinate and rebellious. Therefore, therefore, back to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus came preaching meekness and lowliness, they had no idea what he was talking about. They did not understand it. They wanted, as we've said, military power. They wanted political power. They wanted miracle power. They hated compromise, and yet they were willing to compromise for expedience's sake. A compromise was, was convenient for them, even if it wasn't morally right. They knew all these things, yet, yet they knew nothing of meekness and lowliness. They did not understand the concept of a meek Messiah leading a meek people. Yet that's exactly what Jesus was teaching here in His Sermon on the Mount. Ultimately, they would completely reject him because he was not what they were looking for. They would send him to be executed by the Romans because of what he stood for. They didn't want meek and lowly, that's for sure. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. They had ideas of the kingdom which you remember were not only materialistic, but military also. And to them, the Messiah was one who was going to lead them to victory. So, Lost my place. So, there, there were, so they were thinking in terms of conquest and fighting in a material sense, and immediately our Lord dismisses all that. It is as though He says, no, no, that's not the way. I'm not like that, and my kingdom is not like that, end quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that they had trouble understanding and that we have trouble understanding meekness because it is completely and entirely opposed to everything which the natural man thinks, end quote. Truly, the Jews saw Jesus as weak, and they hated Him for it. Even today, we have people in the church, people who call themselves Christians who are opposed to the idea of suffering and meekness. We have zealots today who want to storm the halls of government and take back our nation. In their, in their estimation, we have a, a powerful government arrayed against us, a government that wants to take away our way of life. They want to take away our freedoms, and they want us to band together to infiltrate the government at the highest levels to protect, protect and take back our way of life. They see Christians who are willing to suffer for the faith passively as weak. But here's the question. What did Jesus mean? Was being weak what he meant? Should the weak band together? Should we storm the gates? So what did Jesus mean by the lowly? What did he mean? Well, as we consider Jesus' meaning in this text, I need to remind you this statement cannot be removed from the context of Jesus' words. We have seen that there is a logical connection between the Beatitudes. Each one necessarily suggests and points to the next. They're not put together in some haphazard way. They're not, uh, if you could, you put it this way, some loosely connected proverbs or truths. You see, they form a cohesive whole message of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones further explains the connection in this way. He says, there is, first of all, that fundamental postulate about being poor in spirits. That is the primary fundamental spirit that leads in turn to a condition of mourning as we become aware of our sin. And that in turn leads to this spirit of meekness. But, I, but and I want to emphasize this, we not only find this logical net connection between them, uh, I would point out also that these beatitudes proceed uh, becoming increasingly difficult. End quote. Now, 
The Greek word translated lowly in the Legacy Standard Bible has been translated by the New American Standard Bible as gentle and by the ESV as meek. The, the word has the idea of mild, gentle, or soft. This word could be understood as a state of powerlessness or the inability to put forward or to forward one's cause. This could have the idea of God coming to one's rescue. As a, as a basic human attitude, this word has the idea of having a gentle spirit or being meek, submissive, quiet, or tender-hearted. But there's some difficulty in truly understanding Jesus' use of this word. As we look at these possible definitions for meek, we could easily get the idea of someone who is weak and has no ability to fight back against an aggressor. They, they just roll over in their weakness. They're, they're docile because they have no power to fight back. But this idea, though, is problematic for at least one reason. The, the fact that they can't fight back physically, I want you to think this through, for the, the fact that they can't fight back physically doesn't mean they don't have the attitude of fighting back. Fighting back. Does that make sense? Just because you can't fight back physically, just because you're weak, doesn't mean that you don't have the attitude of fighting back. To better understand this word, then, I believe we need to look at the Lord Jesus Himself. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, He said of Himself, He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. That word gentle there, translated gentle, is the same word from Matthew 5, 5. So, so we see that Jesus exemplifies being gentle, being lowly. According to Matthew 21.25, or I'm sorry, 21.5, Jesus was lowly and mounted on a donkey. That's what, that's what uh, uh, is quoted about him. Now, in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul used the noun form of this word to refer to the gentleness of Christ. He says, now I, Paul... This is 2 Corinthians 10.1. Now I, Paul, plead with you by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. So he's describing Christ as being gentle. So we see then that Jesus himself was lowly and gentle. Now, we could say that he was willingly weak, especially at the cross. Now, I love the words of, uh, of Arthur Pink. He says this, Jesus was the very king of meekness. He was the very king of meekness, end quote. Yet, we could not say, and this is what I want you to get, we could not say, even though he was the very king of meekness, according to Arthur Pink, and I agree with that, we could not say that Jesus was powerless, right? We never could say he was powerless at any time. There's a major difference, right? As he faced the cross, he told Pilate in, in Matthew 26, 53, he told Pilate that he could appeal to the Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That doesn't sound very weak to me. That doesn't sound powerless to me. So we need to recognize that Jesus had the ability at any given time to destroy his oppressors if that had been the Father's plan. He could have done what the Jews wanted. He could have come in and he could have destroyed the, his, the, the oppressors and he could have set Israel up, except that he couldn't because it wasn't the Father's plan. Yet, this is what we need to get, he willingly limited his power. He became lowly. Jesus is an example of one who willingly looks to the Father for his strength. He is the, well, I shouldn't say an example. He is the example of one who willingly looks to the Father for his strength. He is an example of one who willingly submits to the Father's love and protection. This should help us understand how he desires for us to respond in a similar way as his followers. I think John MacArthur gets it right. He says, meekness does not connote weakness. The word was used in much extra-biblical literature to refer to breaking, the breaking of an animal. Meekness means putting power under control. End quote. He also states it another way. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness does not use its power for its own defense or selfish purposes. Meekness is power completely surrendered to God's control. End quote. And what I want you to understand is that is the picture of Christ. Full power that has full ability, no limits, yet it is under control. Meekness. 
I love, I love the picture that Peter gives in 1 Peter 3. He, he's speaking of the, the conduct of wives. And he says in 1 Peter 3, 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now, now, obviously, we love Peter's words here, and he uses the same word translated lowly as Jesus does in Matthew 5, 5. But here's the takeaway. We need to recognize that Peter is not making women a lower class here. He encourages them to be an example of Christ-likeness. They're being like Christ when they do this. He desires for them to willingly submit to their husbands in the same way that Christ submitted to the Father. It's not, it's not that it's not in their power to act like the world. They can. But it's actually a show of strength under control. Their Christ-like conduct and an incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of, of the Lord. And it can win over, according to Peter, win over their disobedient husbands. But here's the amazing part. This is what's truly amazing. You see, Christian men are called by the Lord to display the same lowliness, right? What a, think about that. We are called as men to be like Christ as well. We are called to be lowly. And if, if both are doing that, if when we do that, when, when men and women are, are acting in, in that way, uh, when we do those things, our marriages become a beautiful picture of Christ-like love and behavior toward one another. Well, in the Old Testament, Psalm 37 helps us understand Jesus' point as well. When, you can turn there if you want, Psalm 37. In the Septuagint, this, is, this same word uh, for lowly is used in, in verse 11. And it's very possible that Jesus had this psalm in mind when He made this statement. Now, the psalmist answers the age-old and difficult question, in this psalm, why do the ungodly and oppressive people prosper while godly people painfully struggle through life? And in, third, in Psalm 37, 1, David tells his readers that they should not, they should not fret because, because of the evildoers, but be not uh, envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and, and fade like the green her herb. Now, in other words, he's saying evildoers never last. And history tells us that violent men tend to meet violent ends. I mean, we see that. Hitler is, is one example. Uh, violent men tend to meet violent ends. Instead of fretting, David gives the following, starting in verse 3, the following godly alternative. He says, trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh, trust in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Then he says this, starting in, in, in Psalm 37, verse 8. If you're there, you can uh, follow along with me. He says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evildoers. And then he says in verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Now, remember what he says in, in verse 5. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but that's a, that's a connection back to Matthew 5.5. 5. Now, this is critical for us to recognize. David says, when you are oppressed, do not get angry, do not fret, but be patient and wait on Yahweh. And trust that in a little while, verse 10, that in a little while the wicked man will be no more. The violent men, wicked men tend to meet their untimely ends, right? You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. Now it's, it's critical for you to recognize or realize that it, it was the Lord who judged that wicked man. It was the Lord who removed him from his place. If I'm the righteous man, I'm to be patient, I'm to wait on the Lord, and I'm to trust that the Lord will deal with it. That's the point. Then in 37.11, Psalm 37.11, David promises that the lowly will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Beloved, I believe this must be the attitude of the Christian today. 
This must be the attitude of the Christian in today's world. We see violence and we see oppression all around us. We see, you know, we see the, the wicked prosper. We're, we're not called to become angry and fight for what we, what we believe we deserve. It has been said, meekness is the bridle of anger. We are called to be lowly. We are called to look to our Lord. We are called to be patient. Uh, again, I love the word of, words of author Pink. He says, meekness is the opposite of self-will towards God and ill-will towards men, end quote. I love, I love Moses' words in Deuteronomy 32-35. This is ultimately the words of the Lord. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their, their foot will stumble, stumble for, the day of their, for the day of their disaster is near and the, the impending things are hastening upon them for Yahweh will render justice to his people and will have compassion on his slaves when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. You see, the Lord doesn't need our help. We are called to be patient. We're called to wait on him. We're called to wait on Yahweh. I love the incredible story of Gideon in, in Judges 6 and 7. You might recall the story. It, 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 God kept on reducing the number of fighting men to an impossibly low number. He told Gideon to lessen his army from, from thousands to just 300 men to defeat the Midianites. You know why he did that? Why He did that to demonstrate, to graphically demonstrate that he, that he and he alone was Gideon's strength. And the Lord's strength, Gideon's 300 men routed a much larger army I love the words of Kent, R. Kent Hughes. Thus a deep trust in the sovereign power of God is the key to meekness. End quote. You get that? You get that? We have a deep trust in the sovereign power of God that leads us to meekness. That leads us to lowliness. Back in Matthew 5.5, 5, our Lord says, it is the lowly who will inherit the earth. In other words, it is those who are poor in spirit. Those who have mourned and are mourning over their sins. They've come to realize, to a realization of how far short they, they fall of the glory of God. Uh, they now recognize that God's strength and their own weakness. They, they willingly choose to wait on God to win every battle. And we, we have to recognize that, that this isn't easy for us to do. It isn't easy. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, meekness is a jewel polished by grace. End quote. Meekness is a jewel polished by grace. The ones who have been shown God's grace, they are the lowly ones who will, will look up one day and find that the wicked are no more. The, the unrighteous have been cut off. Then they, the righteous, will inherit the earth. So the question is, what does it mean by the lowly will inherit the earth? Back in Genesis chapter 1, we find that God created the heavens and the earth. And in, in Genesis 1, 26-28, God blessed mankind and He said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness so that they will have dominion. They will have dominion. They will rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over these things. You could say that God made man to rule over His creation. He also made man to inherit and to enjoy His creation. And what we have to recognize is right now, today, in the world that we live in, it's wicked men who are ruling the earth under the power of Satan. But we have to recognize that it is God who is the ultimate ruler of earth and of heaven. And that one day His people will rule. One day, very soon, righteous men, lowly and gentle men, will take their rightful place in ruling over God's creation. And we can look forward to that. These are righteous men and women who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. They have become the children of God by faith. 
They have become the lowly because they understand their utter unworthiness in the light of God's holiness. They recognize their sinfulness and how far short they fall of His glory. They have come to see that they need, that their need to trust in God alone. They have cast themselves on God's mercy. And ultimately, they believed in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for their sin. Again, just like Matthew 5, 4, Jesus uses an emphatic pronoun. It is they, and only they, it is only the lowly who will inherit the earth. It, was, it is they, and only they, who will delight themselves in abundant peace, borrowing from Psalm 37, verse 11. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. If you think about the steps that we've gone through, if you think about uh, how Jesus is putting this together. What an amazing promise that it is the lowly. It is the lowly who will inherit the earth. Well, this morning, as we turn the corner, as we prepare ourselves for communion, I want to ask you to consider these first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through the first three the question is, have you recognized your lostness and sin? Have you come to see your hopelessness in life? Your utter helplessness to save yourself? Have you seen that you are utterly unworthy of God and, and completely dependent upon Him to save you? Do you have a deep and abiding sorrow produced by the knowledge of your sins and how far short you fall of God's glory? Do you understand your need to pursue lowliness by putting your full trust in the Lord? Well, if you can't say yes to all these things, then I beg you, I beg you on, the behalf, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to Him. I, I beg you this morning, if you haven't done so already, I beg you to turn to Him. To place your trust fully in Him. Do it today. Do it now. Don't let another day go by. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. Today is the day of salvation. And if, I, if you've done these things, if you've come to see these things and you understand them, I ask that you, and I just encourage you to excel still more. Excel still more. Walk with Him. Walk with Him.